As we did in our previous session, let's begin by taking stock of the earthly situation to which Messiah will be returning. Coming back to the narrative of the eschaton, we see the world almost certainly in the worst shape it has been in since creation itself. Geographically, culturally, morally, it is an absolute wreck. Even though the population has been dramatically reduced, food and water are scarce. People are sick and dying. And for some time, but perhaps not still, it's hard to know, the entire world has been cast into impenetrable darkness. It's hard to think of these nations going to war in darkness. And we also have another clue in our text today that maybe the darkness has been lifted. On top of all that, the world is at war. Many of those who joined the worldwide government of the beast, the ten-nation coalition, are now rebelling against him and his false prophet sidekick. Armies have advanced on his headquarters at Megiddo in Israel from the north, the south, and the east. As a result, Jerusalem has once again been attacked, our best guess, by the eastern forces whose way was paved by God Himself by drying up the Euphrates with the sixth bowl of His wrath. I'd like to begin with the three demons. It's almost impossible to designate a beginning point to Armageddon. It seems to flow into it gradually. A pretty good place to start would be in a passage we looked at last week. Revelation 16, which describes the unholy trinity sending out demonic emissaries to gather the nations for war. Let's look at that. Revelation 16, verses 13 to 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs, and go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Now, gird yourself, we're going to be doing a lot of page turning today. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages. Verse 16 concludes this with, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Magadon. One way to read this would be that while verse 14 gives us the ultimate purpose of this gathering, for the war of the great day of God the Almighty, which we 
interpret as Armageddon. That does not necessarily mean that Satan, the earthly orchestrator of this war, reveals this purpose to the kings. I suggest the demonic spirits being sent out are influencing these kings to invade the beast in an effort to regain their sovereign power of their individual nations. That is how they're selling it to them. Go to war against this guy. Get back your sovereign rule over your nations. But they were sent out by the beast. They're not being told that before the war is over, they'll be aligned against very God Himself. Not the beast. At the same time, Perhaps Satan has lied to his two beasts with a different misdirection. That the armies are being called in to fight God, not telling them that they would be fighting the two beasts first. In other words, the dragon lying to his two servants. After all, Satan's the father of lies. He's good at it. He's orchestrating this whole thing. We've already covered the movement of these armies toward Megiddo as well as Zechariah's description of its impact on Jerusalem. So now we begin our look at Armageddon. If one asks your average man or woman on the street, what is the battle of Armageddon? The common answer will probably be that it will be the final war before the end of the world. If one asks your average evangelical the same question, the answer will probably be that it's the final war between Christ and the armies of Antichrist. That latter answer is pretty close. But I believe the narrative requires the answer to be this. The battle of Armageddon is the last and deciding battle of a broader war that began as a world war between nations, but ended with those nations joining each other to fight Christ and the armies of heaven. That's one reason I believe it's called the Battle of Armageddon. It's not a war, it's a battle in a war. Preparations are made for two wars in the eschaton. And Armageddon is not the last. The second preparation is absent a clever, well-known name, but is just as real, just as massive. An army formed during the millennium in in waiting for their general, Satan himself. I, of course, choose the words preparations for to describe these two events because there is no battle. No fighting in either one. Both wars consist of millions of combatants arrayed for battle only to be extinguished in a moment by a word from the Lord in the first and fire from heaven in the second. Revelation 20, 7-10. Now, i got to throw in a note here. In what I just said, no battle, no fighting. 
I need to differentiate between the war between the nations, the battle between those nations and Christ, and the aftermath of both. In the war between the nations, there will indeed be fighting. Bloody death and carnage. Man upon man. There will be no man-to-man nor angel-to-man combat in the battle between the nations and Christ. But the result of Christ's word, the only weapon wielded in the battle, will be a literal bloodbath. Isaiah 34, 1-8, Revelation 14, 17-20. Right now in the narrative, we are ready for this last battle of the world war. Armageddon. Before we address Christ's return, we need to step back for just a moment and revisit something we discussed way back in chapter in session 7. The tribulation fork. Referring to how, shown in chart number 6, immediately after the rapture of the church, there will be two tracks running simultaneously. I lied. It just occurs to me it might be helpful to see that chart. Could you put it up, number 6? Did I say... No. No, session 7. Chart 6, please. I told him I was giving him an easy gig today, and I lied. But perhaps some of you don't recall. Gee, I hate to lose that marvelous chart. We'll come back to it. Yeah, there we go. No, not that one. Six. Somebody spoke up. I don't know who it was. There we go. There we go. I've entitled this a tribulation fork. Right at the rapture, it splits. Roughly seven and a half years, or seven years on the earth that we call the tribulation, that God's Word calls the tribulation. But the church goes up to heaven and there's the Bema seat of Christ and the wedding and marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, now you can go back. Thank you. So we need to look back for a moment at the wedding and marriage supper of the Lamb. The earthly track is the tribulation, which we've been studying for the last, wait for it, 39 sessions. And the heavenly track, I suggested, will consist of the believer's Bema seat judgment, followed by the wedding and marriage supper of the Lamb. I likened at the time the heavenly track to an end times reenactment of Noah's Ark, and the earthly track, the tribulation, to a reenactment of the flood. I pointed out at the time that it is very difficult to place the components of the heavenly track. An older chart, on older charts of the eschaton, they're seen in a number of places. 
In session seven, I submitted my rationale for placing the Bema seat of judgment for believers shortly after the rapture. But the placement of the wedding and wedding feast is more problematic. Most older charts show the marriage supper taking place near the end of the tribulation period on earth. The text seems to suggest that. Although we can't just go by especially in Revelation, we can't say, well, it's the next paragraph. It has to happen next. (laughs) No, 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 no. Not always. We've learned that lesson. But most place it right before Christ returns in judgment. And that's roughly where I would place it. What we cannot say conclusively is the duration of either the judgment or the supper. We cannot say what the heavenly wedding and marriage supper will be like. We have only the biblical picture of the earthly vision to go by. Quote, In Jewish culture, the marriage supper was the best banquet or party anyone knew. It always was an occasion of tremendous joy. End quote. That's David Guzik. And it went on for days. Wherever the wedding and supper fall in the timeline, they are discussed right before Christ's return in chapter 19. Let's look at that. Revelation 19. Verses 7 to 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. One, one reason to see the, mari- the, the uh, Bema seat coming before the marriage supper is that the Bema seat, it's hard to come up with, the right words for this, but because we, we, the church, the individual members of the church enter heaven at the rapture sanctified. We're forgiven. But the Bema seat, we, 1 Corinthians gives us a picture of coming to the Bema seat with some chaff things that need to get burned up in our lives. And that's when that is burned up. We are further refined. And so we have pictures in our text today, and we have, we've had it before, of being clothed in white. The armies coming with Christ when He returns are clothed in white. It's the righteousness of the saints. And the idea is that we've been through the Bema seat. We've been through the judgment of believers and refined. And now we're clothed in the clothes of heaven and we're ready to go. But the Bema seat has to come first. 
Now we turn to the return of Christ. And you may think, well, now wait a minute. What about Armageddon? That's the point. That's why that's designed the way it is. It all kind of happens all at the same time. And it's hard to, very difficult to say, this happens, then this happens, then this. They're all kind of mushed together. So we have to look at them all at once. In some respects, it just might be worth, I hope I don't get zapped for this, it just might be worth being a relatively new Christian during the tribulation, suffering the many plagues, persecution, and the very real potential of martyrdom, just to be there to see the Savior suddenly appear, to deal out justice against those trying to kill you. Oh, the church will see it, but we'll see it from behind. The people on earth will see it coming right at them. The words of the old hymn by Mabel Johnston Camp seem to capture it well. Here's what she wrote. Lift up your heads, pilgrims weary. See days approach now crimson the sky. Night shadows flee, and your beloved, awaited with longing, at last draweth nigh. Dark was the night. Sin warred against us. Heavy the load of sorrow we bore. But now we see signs of His coming. Our hearts glow within us. Joy's cup runneth o'er. O blessed hope, O blissful promise, filling our hearts with rapture divine. O day of days, hail thy appearing, thy transcendent glory forever shall shine. Mabel Johnston Camp. She got it. I bet none of you have ever sung that hymn. I think it's lift up your heads, pilgrims are weary, are weary, but I'm not sure. But but search on Mabel Johnston Camp, you'll find it. That's good. Good stuff. I do not think that mere words can capture the drama. The overwhelming glory and power of his coming, of his appearing. Everyone in the world will see it at once. They will see Him at once. The best we have is Scripture itself, and we'll be looking at a number of passages to get a full picture of this event. Turn please to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30. There are many references in God's Word to Christ's return. I've selected a few that capture the multidimensional aspects of His second coming. I'll begin with a couple of verses in Isaiah 64 that plead for the Lord to come down and show Himself, to to reveal His power against the nations. This is like a call to worship. We have calls to worship. We have songs 
of calls to worship, we have songs of worship. This is a call for His coming in Isaiah 64, 1-2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. An earlier prophecy by Isaiah captures the vivid, frightening depth to Christ's wrath at His coming. He will no longer be the submissive lamb slain. So we're in Isaiah 30. I'll begin at verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is His anger, and dense is His smoke. His lips are filled with indignation, and His tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival in gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause His voice of authority to be heard and the descending of His arm to be seen in fierce anger, and in the flame of a consuming fire in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when He strikes with the rod, and every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres, and in battles brandishing weapons he will fight them. For Topheth has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood, the breath of the Lord like a torrent of brimstone sets it afire. That's not the gospel Jesus. It's a different Jesus. Same one, but a different aspect of the same person. The same Lord. But Isaiah also included the more tender aspects of the Lord's coming. Now turn to 40. Isaiah 40. Let me begin at verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. That, that narrates, it's a, it's a different picture 
A different aspect of what, ha- what we read last week in Zechariah. After those first verses where it describes the horrible things happening in Jerusalem, Christ appears on Mount Zion and He deals with Jerusalem as a shepherd. Now turn to the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 to 10 For after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the lord jesus will be, when the lord jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know god and to those who do not obey the gospel of our lord jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who, have, all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. So in these passages, and of course many more, we see the duality of this event. Christ is returning in fierce wrath to deal out justice and punishment for all who have rejected Him. We who have lived with Christ in the New Testament, who've grown up in the church, and especially the Gospels, and as He appears in person in the Old Testament, we wouldn't recognize Him here. It's the same Lord and Savior, but now he's mad. Just like the Father. And they have every right to be. They promised it. They said, this is going to happen. Now's the time it's going to happen. At the same time, he comes as the answer to many prayers and pleadings for him to rescue his followers. This is the answer to that prayer. He's here to take care of them. Finally, Jesus himself describes for us the sudden abruptness of his return, the the nature of his return, and that he will be at once seen by all. Turn to Matthew 24, please. Matthew 24. Beginning with verse 27. Christ in His great eschatological discourse. We've we've been here before. Matthew 24, beginning with 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And then all the tribes of, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. In the rapture, Christ Jesus remains in the air, in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 For the second coming, His feet will touch down, and He will remain. He will be universally seen by all at the same time. Yet, along with that will be a special appearance outside Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. In Zechariah 14.4, In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. We're now ready for John's revelation of this event. Let's turn back to chapter 19, Revelation 19. John sees the Messiah in a more fantastical entrance that perhaps some aspects of which will not be seen by those on earth at the time because it begins in heaven. But Scripture is clear. Every last soul on earth will see His appearing. And they will know who He is. Don't waste your time trying to figure out how this feat is accomplished. He's God. He can do it. End of story. Now is the point at which the armies of the nations turn from fighting each other and join to do battle with Christ. How long this will take How it's accomplished, we're not told. Since Christ appears everywhere at once, there need not be a mass movement of forces. He can go wherever He wants. He is at everywhere He wants at once. Let's read what John saw. Here's the revelation account of Christ's coming, and it begins in heaven. Chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. For he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, 
were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. And by the way, that sword is not a Roman sword, a a dual-edged sword like the Roman army used, about kind of, about yay. This is more like a javelin, more like a spear, very long. But of course, this is speaking of, it's a way to picture the strength and impact of His Word. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When we add together the various Scripture passages, we know that it's more than just angels accompanying the Lord. Coming with Him from heaven are the church, the bride of the Lamb, dressed in fine linen, in glorified bodies. The Old Testament saints resurrected at the end of the tribulation, Daniel 12, verses 1 to 2. Now this I have a question mark by. The, the John MacArthur says that it also includes the tribulation martyrs from chapter 7, verse 9. Yet, chapter 20, verse 4 indicates that these are not resurrected until after Satan is bound. So I'm not sure that's right. But finally, of course, the holy angels from heaven, Matthew 25, 31. So this is a rather sizable group. All these accompanying the Lord will appear to those on the ground as an unbeatable army, numbering millions upon millions, but they are not there to fight. Not one of them will be armed. They're not coming to fight, but to reign with Christ during the millennium. Christ, with His vast company, appears, and the following things occur, we assume, in close order. The armies are arrayed to fight Christ. They're ready to go. An angel poised between earth and the sun declares in a loud voice an invitation, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great." Verses 17 to 18 of chapter 19. Note that apparently the darkness of the fifth bowl has now been at least temporarily lifted, for this angel is seen hovering between earth and the sun. Then the two generals in charge of this vast army are summarily removed. Verse 20. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Don't miss that. 
These two alone will not be killed by the word from the Lord so that they will still be alive when Jesus casts them into the lake of fire. This is Jesus behaving in a manner different from the Gospels. Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44 That dispensation is at an end. Now comes the dispensation of vengeance and wrath. No mercy will be shown to the wicked. The invitations to salvation, they're done. No more. No mercy will be shown to the wicked. The two in charge of all the evil of the previous seven years will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. And 1,000 years hence, when they are joined by Satan, they will still be alive, burning in the lake of fire. Next, after this, Christ Jesus speaks and every combatant remaining drops dead. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We're told the instrument of these deaths, Christ's sword, we take that to mean his word, but not the manner of the deaths. But there are too many references to copious amounts of blood, for example, Revelation 14.20, to assume that they just silently drop over and pass out, as if being effortlessly rendered unconscious. Then the birds and beasts of the field begin feasting on the flesh of the millions of dead soldiers. This moment fulfills the vision of the reaping of the earth in chapter 14. Verses 19 to 20. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Revelation 19 to 20. Chapter 14. I appreciate what John Walvert has to say about all this vengeance and bloodshed. This is what he writes. All of these passages point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment, it is too late for men to expect the mercy of God. There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. Now note. The scene of awful judgment which comes from this background is in flat contradiction of the modern point of view that God is dominated entirely by His attribute of love. We've all heard that, haven't we? How could a loving God do this? God is love. God is many things, only one of which is love. Let me read it again. The scene of awful judgment which comes from this background is in flat contradiction of the modern point of view that God is dominated entirely by His attribute of love. Joseph Seiss, as is his way, offers a more florid but eloquent description of this epical moment. Here's Joseph Seiss. This tells already an awful story. 
It tells of the greatest men who made food for the vultures, of kings and leaders strong and confident devoured on the field with no one to bury them, of those who thought to conquer heaven's anointed king rendered helpless even against the timid birds, of vaunting gods of nature turned into its cast-off and most dishonored dregs. And what is this Forintimated soon becomes reality. The great conqueror bows the heavens and comes down. He rides upon the cherub horse and flies upon the wings of the wind. Smoke goes up from his nostrils and devouring fire out of his mouth. He moves amid storms and darkness from which the lightnings hurl their bolts and hailstones mingle with the fire. He roars out of Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem till the heavens and the earth shake. He dashes forth in the fury of his incensed greatness amid clouds and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun frowns. The day is neither light nor dark. The mountains melt and cleave waters, cleave asunder at his presence. The hills bound from their seats and skip like lambs. The waters are dislodged from their channels. The sea rolls back with howling trepidation. The sky is rent and folds upon itself like a collapsed tent. It is the day for executing an armed world. A world in covenant with hell to overthrow the authority and throne of God. And everything in terrified nature joins to signalize the deserved vengeance. It's Joseph Sice. In our next session, we'll be looking at the millennium. But right now we close the tribulation. And everyone said, Amen. Go away. We close the tribulation with the fitting imprisonment of the one who orchestrated all its evil. In a passage in the prophecy of Ezekiel where he foretells the final post-millennial battle and its conclusion, we discover a clue to understand why, beyond all earthly logic, Christ Jesus would imprison Satan rather than throw him into the lake of fire right now. I mean, you've got the lake right there. There it is. Along with his servants, the two beasts, they're already there. They paved the way. Let me read a short passage from Ezekiel 39. Verses 20 to 22. You will, this is God Jehovah speaking, you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God, and I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. We may not understand all the whys and wherefores of our sovereign God, 
but somehow he will receive glory by permitting Satan to live for another opportunity, to plan his own vengeance against the Lord. His attempt will fail, of course, and he will then find himself swimming in the lake of fire along with his buddies. The two beasts. Now let's read what I see as the last three verses of the tribulation. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. As it closes, we literally close and lock the lid over Satan. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Wouldn't you like to be there? And perhaps we'll be, we will be privileged to witness it. When this angel grabs Satan himself, that evil dragon, it just occurs to me right this moment, notice that Jesus doesn't do it, does He? He's not going to touch Him. Grabs Him by the scruff of the neck and throws Him into the abyss. This is the temporary subterranean prison for demons. And it will be His home for the next 1,000 years. His incarceration, as described, is, quote, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, end quote. Many like to describe the next thousand years as paradise on earth, a return to Eden. And in some respects, with Christ holding absolute rule during this period, I suppose that can be true. Frankly, however, my response to that is always to point out verses 7 and 8 in this chapter, which occurs immediately after the millennium. Chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. The question that these verses always raise for me is, if the previous thousand years have been a paradise on earth, under the rule of Christ Jesus, where did Satan so quickly find those, numbering like the sand of the seashore in the millions, willing to join him in one last attempt at insurrection against God? Next week we'll dig deeper into the millennium, but for now I suggest we think of it this way. The millennium will indeed in many respects be a return to the paradise of Eden. But what happened in Eden? Just like in Eden where sin and rebellion against God lay dormant but eventually found its way into action, Sin and rebellion will gather and grow beneath the surface like a cancerous growth that begins small but ultimately threatens the whole body. 
Initially, the millennium will be peopled by the regenerate who survived the tribulation. Believers in Christ, followers, and wherever there is natural flesh. Remember, we may be ruling. Millions from heaven have come down to rule with Christ. But all these are glorified. They're not in earthly flesh anymore. But those who survive the tribulation, even as followers, they go into the millennium and they have children. And they have children. And on. For a thousand years. Wherever there is natural flesh, there will be a proclivity towards sin. This rebellion will begin small but steadily grow, springing from their many descendants, believers, their descendants, who in this room have children, grandchildren that are not believers. So that when he is released from the abyss, Satan will have a ready and willing army to join him in his last gasp of insurrection before he does indeed join his compatriots in the eternal lake of fire. Our Father in heaven, we, even though we rejoice in this picture of Christ returning to deal once and for all with sin, we tremble at the thought of what is all included in that. Father, fill us with wisdom from above because we need it to digest all of this. But meanwhile, we give You the glory and all the praise as we see in writing your vengeance and wrath against evil. May you be praised, and may your Son, our Savior, be praised. Amen.